following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken them there. The Lord was with Joseph, and so he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused, with me in charge, he told her. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend his duties. None of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make a sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Well, kia ora. Really cool to be with you guys today as part of this collaboration series that we're doing across three churches. And I love this. I love this idea that three churches can get together and combine and work together. And, uh, and Reuben and Jonathan Dove from Grace City, who you're going to hear next week, and myself have spent a couple of half days actually putting these sermons together um, as a threesome, together, to really work these through. And so it's been a really wonderful collaboration together. And so if there's anything I say today that you don't like, that's probably Ruben's part, just to let you know. <laughs> but anything else, just go with me, if that's all right. Um, but actually doing it across our churches, and, and the, the staff teams from churches have collaborated on things like this, this booklet and the videos we're watching to see different people from each of the three churches reading scripture for us. 
I think has been fantastic. And so I hope you're going to enjoy the rest of this series. And so Reuben introduced us uh, to the series last week here by uh, taking you to, to uh, Genesis chapter 37. And so this morning, it's my privilege to continue the series in Genesis 39. So if you've got a Bible with you, either one of these old-fashioned ones made out of paper, or you've just got a simple app on your phone or iPad or whatever works for you, I'd love you to come with me to Genesis 39, because while we've had the scripture read to us, I am going to refer back and read a certain portions of the story again, just so we catch exactly what is going on in this story together. But as we heard on the video, uh, at the end of chapter 37, Joseph, this young teenage guy of 17, was sold by his brothers, great dysfunctional family, uh, sold to slave traders who take him down to Egypt. And there he is sold, um, as we heard in the video this morning, to a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of the guard of the Egyptian king Pharaoh. So this was a, a, a really important official in the Egyptian court. The captain of the guard led the elite unit of soldiers who were personally responsible for the life of the pharaoh. So that the captain who led that elite force was one of the most trusted officials in, in the entire land of Egypt. And so this man Potiphar buys Joseph, this teenage a kid and takes him back to his home. And over the course of a period of time, and we're not told how many weeks or months or possibly even years it takes, but Joseph so proves himself in the household that he ends up running the whole thing. Like he the boss, just as in his family, he rose to the top and became the most trusted son of his father. Now in this household, he rises to the top until he is in charge of everything that happens and Potiphar entrusts everything to the care of Joseph. And so that's kind of the introduction in the first six verses that were read to us. But the action really begins in verse or in verse six, midway through. Now, I'm using an NIV translation, and in the NIV, they very helpfully start a new paragraph midway through verse 6, and I think they're right to do so. But here's what we read, middle of verse 6. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now, that's important, because generally the Bible doesn't describe characters. We're generally not given a physical description of most of the men and women in the Bible, so when the Bible takes time to tell us this is what someone looked like, it's for a reason. It's not random. It's actually really important to the story. So for Joseph, this is important. So Joseph, two words, well-built and handsome. And those two words in the original Hebrew language are describing the first word's describing the figure, the body, and the second word is describing the face. And these two words in combination are only used one other time in the whole Bible of someone to describe someone else. And interestingly, it's Joseph's mum. Her name was Rachel. And she was one of two sisters that their dad married. He married both of them, was a real messed up. That was part of the whole dysfunction of the thing. But he had fallen in love with this younger sister named Rachel. And here is how she described, if we're going to get this clicker to work, yep, we've got it. Hold on. Now I've done something. What the heck? Here we go. Genesis 29. Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Genesis 39. Joseph was well built and handsome. In the original Hebrew text, it's the same words. And it's the only time these two words are put together for any Bible character. 
And so the first word is describing what their bodies were like. And so she had a lovely figure. He was well built. It's the same word. But our English translators are making it helpful for us thinking about a, a woman with a beautiful figure and a dude with a great figure. All right? And then it's the same second word. She was beautiful. He was handsome. And, but it's the same word. And the words, the descriptions are meant to define not just ordinary good-looking people. Like Rachel was drop-dead gorgeous. Joseph was walk along the beach and go, oh my goodness, look at him. That's what we meant to understand. And that's why the Bible is telling us what he looks like. Because this is really important to the story. Now, what's interesting is archaeologists in Egypt in the last few years, in their uh, digging around in some of the ruins, have actually uncovered a mosaic, which is kind of cool because this whole series is called Mosaic, that they aren't sure, but it could potentially be Joseph. Here it is. <laughs> Remarkably, he looks a little bit like Brad Pitt, which is a big surprise. But I'm just being facetious. For, I don't want any of you going and, you know, Googling archaeology digging in Egypt, you know, for Joseph or something. But this is what we meant to understand, and this is why the narrator tells us and describes his physical looks. Because Joseph is the most drop-dead, gorgeous, hunky guy in all of the land of Egypt. And this is why what happens next happens. Verse 7, after a while, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, took notice of Joseph. She's like, dude, look at this dude in my house. And she says, come to bed with me. It's actually only two words in the Hebrew language. Come, bed. And it's almost this idea of this, it's, it's, it's quick, it's sharp, it's almost brutish, is one, the way one commentator describes her invitation. It's not even an invitation, it's a demand. She, she wants to make use of this incredibly good-looking young man in her household. And verse 10 tells us that she keeps after him day after day after day. And look at his response. If you've got it open in front of you, look at verses 8 and 9. Because these are the only recorded words of Joseph in the whole narrative, in the whole chapter. This is the only time we're going to hear his voice. But look at what he says. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my master? Is that what it says? Sin against God. See, Joseph quite rightly realizes that to give in to the sexual advances of this woman is to sin not only against Potiphar, but even more, to sin against the God of his fathers. Now, when you stop and think about that, this is remarkable. This is a 17 or 18 or whatever age he was at this point, however many months has gone by. He's a teenage kid from a highly dysfunctional family, as we saw, Far away from home, no one is going to know anything. He's 17 or 18, for goodness sake. Hormones are raging. He is wanted, desired by a woman. 
He has no Bible. No part of the scriptures have been written yet. And he has such a well-defined understanding of who God is, he is refusing to go to bed with this woman primarily out of reverence for the God that his, his family worships. I think that's outstanding. That's amazing to me that this kid would, would refuse to give in to this temptation that must have been tempting, surely, out of reverence for God. It reminds me of the words that King David would write centuries later when Nathan the prophet confronted him about the sin that he had committed with a woman named Bathsheba, including not only sleeping with her, but then killing her husband and making a complete meal of his whole life. And when he's confronted by the prophet and repents, he writes this beautiful psalm, Psalm 51 in our Bibles. And in verse 4, King David wrote this, Against you, speaking to God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now the reality is David had sinned against more than just God. He'd sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against Uriah. He'd, he'd sinned against his other wives and his kids. He'd sinned against the entire kingdom. But what he's saying is he's using hyperbole in the psalm to say, ultimately, my sin is against the holy God. Now, David was a well-thought-out theologian who was steeped in as much of the Bible as had been written to that point. Joseph had none of that. And yet here he is saying essentially the same theology to this woman. I'm not going anywhere near you. And it's not out of respect for my master as much as it is respect for my God. I think this is remarkable. But she keeps coming at him day after day, it says in verse 10. And we don't know how long this goes on for. This might have been uh, weeks. This could have been month after month after month. This woman comes after him, hounding him, come to bed with me, until finally it reaches a climax, this key moment that takes place in verse 11. Have a look again if you've got it there. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties. And none of the household servants was inside. And she caught him by his cloak. She grabbed him and said, same words, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Centuries later, the apostle Paul will write these powerful words. Flee from sexual immorality. I can't help wondering if this is the story that Paul had in mind. As he writes this, these words to a church in a city, Corinth, that was incredibly sexualized, where the whole ethos of the, of the, of the city, of the place, was simply just indulge, just enjoy yourself, go for it. Sex is just a hunger to be enjoyed. There are no rules. Whatever feels good, do it. Sounds rather similar to the society we're in today, doesn't it? And Paul will write to them and say, flee from sexual immorality. And I wonder if it's the Joseph story, this story that he has in mind. As Joseph leaves his cloak in the woman's hands and he just runs. And you know, in the sexualized world we live in today, 
we have to hear these words too. Run like crazy. Run from that compromising position with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Run from that flirtatious uh, arrangement relationship with a colleague at work. Run from those sites that try and lure you in on the internet. Run. Flee sexual immorality. Why, Paul says, because all other sins that we commit, we commit outside of our body, but there's something about sexual sin. We're sinning against the very bodies God has made us. We're not just spirit people that it doesn't matter what we do physically with these bodies God has given us. It matters tremendously, Paul says. But then he also goes, goes on and writes this in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know your bodies, if you are followers of Jesus, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus that we've just celebrated at the communion table. So therefore you honor God with your bodies. And that's what Joseph does in this story. Day after day after day until this climactic day when she grabs him. Says, come. And he leaves his cloak in her hands and he runs. This is the second time, by the way, in his life that someone has grabbed his cloak. His brothers did it, didn't they? Chapter 37. They took his cloak and they used it to deceive their father. Well, this time she's going to use it to deceive the household and her husband. So in the next few verses, she calls the servants in and show them, show, or are them the cloak that Joseph has left and says, this guy tried to rape me. And then she waits till her husband comes home, having got all the servants on her side. She says in verse 16, says she kept the cloak beside her till her master, his master came home. Verse 17, that Hebrew slave you brought us, he came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. Verse 19, when his master heard the story, his wife told him saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. This is not just a story about resisting sexual temptation, although that's obviously a key part to it. This is actually a story of injustice. It's a story of being framed. It's a story of false accusation. Because this young man has done the right thing. And where does he end up with that? He ends up in prison. He ends up with the label racist. That's not racist. Rapist on him. He is falsely accused of doing something he never did. In fact, the complete opposite of what he did. And he ends up in prison for it. And his life is slowly going down the plug hole, isn't it? He ends up in the pit with his brothers and then in the slave yards of Egypt. Now he ends up in prison and he hasn't done anything, has he? 
This kid is just simply trying to do what is right and look what's happening to him. It's fascinating when you map out this as a story. The way that a plot works of a simple story, whether it's in the Bible or a movie, is is there's an introduction and a conclusion, obviously, to start and finish. And there's three main pieces to a story. Now, obviously, movies and novels make it all more complex and have twists and turns. But here's here's the basic way the story works. There's a crisis or a conflict, which is this woman coming on to Joseph again and again and again in verses 6 to 10. And then it reaches a climax, which in this story is this day where she tries to grab him and he runs and she makes her false accusations in verses 11 to 15. And so it's like, it's like it begins and, and it builds and the tension builds and builds and builds and it peaks at the climax and then a story settles again and resolves. And so as I was planning this message, I, I, I drew that on, on my whiteboard in my office. And I went, you know, the, there's a crisis and then there's a, a climax and then there's a resolution. And then I realized that the resolution of the story is really not a resolution. In fact, the word resolution on my whiteboard now has a question mark next to it. Because the, res, the resolution of the story is that he's in prison. Which is no resolution, is it? See, he's done the right thing, and look where he ends up. Does that seem fair to you? It doesn't to me. One of the writers that we've found particularly helpful putting this series together is a guy called Vody Balcom. And he writes this, there it is. Joseph's reward for faithfulness and purity, betrayal. That's his reward. We would expect Joseph's faithfulness to be rewarded with deliverance, wouldn't we? But that's not the case. Instead of happily ever after, this story goes from the frying pan into the fire. It's true, isn't it? I'm wanting you to feel the tension of this story. See, because I think Genesis 39 begins to challenge our assumptions on how God works. See, Joseph does the right thing here. And God doesn't come through for him. Joseph does the right thing. He honors God. He resists temptation. And God does not deliver him. God does not rescue him. God does not vindicate him. God doesn't make this right. God leaves him in a prison. And I think that goes against the way many of us assume the Christian life works. See, we assume, I think, that if we do the right thing, then God owes us, doesn't he? If we honour him, isn't he meant to honour us? Isn't he meant to come through for us? Isn't he meant to sort out the mess? That's what the Bible says, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 6, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help him. Did Joseph think God was just at this point? I don't reckon he did. You imagine a young adult whose boyfriend or girlfriend is putting potential pressure on them to start sleeping together, to take their relationship to another level. And because that young adult is a follower of Jesus, 
They resist that and say, look, I'm not comfortable. I don't want to go there until I'm married. That's the commitment I have made. And so that young adult's boyfriend or girlfriend dumps them for someone else. And they're left alone. They're left with a broken heart. Where's God in that? Or imagine an employee in a company who works out that part of the way the company is making a profit in these hard COVID times is just by doing a little bit of fraud here and there. And the employee says, look, I'm sorry, but I'm a Christian and I can't be part of that fraud. I'm not prepared to compromise my personal integrity and ethics just to make you know, a profit for the company. And wouldn't you know it, when the company decides to just do a few redundancies in the restructure a few months later, guess who's at the top of the list for redundancy? Or you imagine a friend sitting with other friends, enjoying a coffee together and a catch-up as, as mates, and they, they, they're chatting together and they begin to, to ridicule and gossip about someone else behind their back. And the friend sits there for a little while, but then says, look, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the direction of this conversation. I don't think it's fair to be talking about this person when they're not here. And there's that what uncomfortable silence. And then they find out a week or two later that the group has been meeting for coffee without them. They've been uninvited along the way. There's multiple times in life, isn't there, where we can choose to do the right thing. Be obedient to what Scripture says. To act ethically and in a way that we feel like is going to honour God. And so often in life, isn't it, we can, we can end up being wronged through that. Things can go south for us. And sometimes God will step in. And God may make something happen. And God may vindicate us. God may make things right. But you know what? Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes that young adult doesn't find a romantic interest for a long time and feels the pang of loneliness. Sometimes that Christian employee who's been made redundant doesn't find a job immediately and it goes month after month of those issues of trying to find something. Sometimes that friend has been ostracized standing up to gossip and feels uninvited for weeks or months to come. Sometimes we can do the right thing and God doesn't make it right. So is God just? The answer is yes. Because what Hebrews 6 and the rest of Hebrews is trying to remind us is what Reuben just mentioned to us as we lead into communion today. Hope. This glorious inheritance we have coming for us. See, one day, there is a day coming when our just God is going to right every wrong. He is going to vindicate every decision. He is going to sort every issue. He's going to wipe away every tear. And in the new heavens and the new earth, everything is going to be made right. But we're not there yet. So what Genesis 39, I think, is teaching us is this. When we are wronged, God may not make it right. He may make it right. He may step in. He may vindicate. He may sort it for us, but he may not. The Bible does not guarantee that he's going to come through for you 
right now in this moment you want him to. The Bible does not guarantee that God will say yes to every prayer that we pray. And the reality of Genesis 39 is that when we are wronged, God may or may not make it right for us. But what he does promise us is that he'll be with us. And that's what we find in this particular story. That while God doesn't immediately make it right for Joseph, Joseph, in fact, ends up in prison on a false accusation of rape and will languish in prison for years. What God gives him is his greatest gift, his presence. See, let me come back to the way this story works. If all we had was those middle three, the main action parts of the story, the crisis, the climax, the so-called resolution, if that was the story, we would end up thinking, gee, Joseph has this rough. This sucks. What a stupid story. Who put this in the Bible? I don't really think that, by the way, just in case you're worried. What makes the story come together for us theologically, though, is what's at the beginning and end. Because in this particular story, the introduction and the conclusion are incredibly important because they bookend the seeming inactivity of God. So if you still have Genesis 39 in front of you, have a look again at the way this story is introduced. Genesis 39, verse 2. Begins the Lord. Now when you see Lord... In your English Bible, in capital letters, that's the name of God. In the Hebrew language, it is Yahweh. And we translate it this way, but I don't particularly like that. And so as I read this, these next sections, when I see the Lord, I am going to say the name of God, Yahweh. Because his name is used 7,000 times in the Old Testament. And when it is used, it's being used to emphasize and underline his relationship with his people, including Joseph in this story. So let's have a look. Chapter 39, verse 2. Yahweh was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that Yahweh was with him and that Yahweh gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and he became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, Yahweh blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And the blessing of Yahweh was on everything that Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. That's how the story had started. Now have a look how it ends. Midway through verse 20, new paragraph in the NIV. But while Joseph was there now in prison, Yahweh was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because Yahweh was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Did you hear some of those phrases? Seven times the name of Yahweh is used in the introduction and the conclusion of the story. And that is significant because in the whole narrative of Joseph, from chapter 37 to chapter 50, the name of Yahweh will be used a total of eight times. Seven of those eight 
are in this story. Seven of those eight are in the introduction and the conclusion. And what is being emphasized, the way the story is being written, is if you just look at the action in the middle, it feels like Joseph's been wronged and God's doing nothing to make it right. Correct. But you know what God is doing? He's with him. He's with him. Seven times his name will be used out of the eight. And four times. Did you hear the phrase? Twice in the introduction, twice in the conclusion. Yahweh was with him. Yahweh was with him. Yahweh was with him. Yahweh was with him. And see this, this is what God gives us. When we are wronged, when our lives go south, when we try to do what's right and it doesn't turn out the way we'd hoped, God may or may not make it right, but do you know what he promises? He's with us. He is with you. No matter what you face today, no matter what struggle or hardship you have going on in your life, no matter how you might have been wronged when you were just trying to do what was right, the greatest blessing that God comes in our pain and hardship and difficulty is that he brings to us his presence. And he says, no matter where you are, whether you're in the the unemployment line trying to find a job again, whether you're in the, the singles line wishing you could be in a romantic relationship again, whether you're in the cancer ward at the hospital, whether you're in the line of loneliness, whether you're in the line of financial difficulty, God comes and says, I'm there. I'm with you. And I will never, ever leave you. See, and that's what makes the difference when we come to this story and read it. Because we're not uh, Hebrew Jewish people writing a few hundred years after probably Moses wrote the story. We are followers of Jesus living 2,000 years after the coming of Christ. And we read Genesis 39, we read it as Christians. And what we have added to the story is the coming of Jesus. And Jesus making this final part of this key idea come alive. He's present with us. And the prophet Isaiah prophesied that the coming of Messiah would come in a few hundred years. He says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child and you will name him Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. He is with us. And the coming of Jesus reminds us, gives us the ultimate assurance, no matter what you face, God stepped into our world. And God has begun the sorting out of this broken world. And God is going to bring in a new heaven and a new earth one day. And right now he is with you. And Jesus' own parting words at the end of the gospel of Matthew say that, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The writer to the Hebrews picks it up. Never will I leave you. Never 
will I forsake you? Some of you need to hear those words afresh today. In the midst of the wrong, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sickness, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the hardship, hear the words of a Father who loves you and a Spirit who is in you and a Saviour who has come for you. I will never leave you. And I am always here. But Jesus didn't come only as the ultimate assurance that God is with us. He also came as the ultimate example of what to do when you're wronged. Because Peter wrote, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And this is what you're called to. Because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. The ultimate person who was wronged was Jesus. As he hung on a cross, forsaken, alone, crucified by his very creatures. Aren't you glad that the Father did not step in and deliver him at that moment? That God did not make it right for his son. Because in the very act of him being wronged, you and I are saved. See, when we are wronged, God may not make it right, but he's with us. So I want to ask you a question as we end. Because there's two possible outcomes in here. One is that God would deliver us, and one is that God would be with us. What I think Genesis 39 teaches, along with the rest of Scripture, is that God may or may not deliver you, but he will always be with you. But my hunch is this. If you got to choose deliverance or presence, I think most of us would go deliverance, wouldn't we? We just want God to sort this. We just want God to come through. We want God to solve the problem. We want God to vindicate us. We want God to fry a couple of people in our lives. We want God to come through and deliver us. And what this part of Joseph's story is saying to us, he may or may not, but that is not the best thing that we could hope for. The greater gift is his presence. He's with you no matter what you face, no matter what you're going through. So pray for deliverance. Cry out for healing. Ask God to step in. By all means, we are to do that. But lean into his presence. Walk with him. And allow him to comfort you, sustain you, and hold you in the days ahead. God, thank you for this story in your word. Thank you for this powerful reminder that while we would like you to make it right now, you will make it right one day. And in the meantime, you're simply with us. Forgive us for taking that for granted. Forgive us for thinking that's not as important 
as it actually is. And thank you that if we are yours, you'll never let us go. We entrust ourselves to you afresh today. In your name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.